Whether you read every day or haven't finished a book in years, chances are there's at least one book you've kept with you for a long, long time. Something about the main character or the setting or maybe just the time in your life you discovered it. I want to know more about that. My name is Malavika Prasid, and this is Your Favorite Book. And today's guest is Rabia Bauer. Hi, Rabia. How are you? I'm so good. It's good to have you on today. Thank you for having me on. I'm so excited to talk about this book. We're delving into a topic that's really near and dear to my heart. And um, before we get started with getting into the book proper, Rabia, can you tell everyone listening a little bit about yourself? Yeah, definitely. Um, So I just recently started a bookstagram and it's sharing all the books I wish I had growing up. Um, Mm -hmm. So my Instagram handle is Betty Books, right? Like daughter in Hindi. Mm -hmm. And it's all the children's books that I'm loving sharing with my daughter. And I'm so excited to share a book that's not for children, um, but a book that I'm excited to share with you that was so important to me growing up as a teenager. Yeah. And it's really interesting reading this book because I hadn't actually heard of it, but as I looked into a little bit more, I think it might be uh, a little bit of a generational gap and also just, um, just a lot of literature that came after this book that sort of, you know, took on some of its themes. And uh, so the book we're talking about today is Born Confused by Tanuja Desai Edie. And um, before I give us a brief summary about this book, I wanted to briefly mention to everyone at home, Rabia, how you and I actually got acquainted. So I know you from Bookstagram. I've been a fan of Beatty books for a while. Um, But I also know that you moderate a Facebook group that I've found so helpful these past few months. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about this Facebook group? Yeah, definitely. And I'm so glad you found it helpful. So um, myself and another woman, Deepa, co-founded a group called SWEAR, um, which stands for South Asian Women in Interracial Relationships. We also have an interfaith group. Um, and Deepa and I realized that there wasn't an online space for South Asian women who were in relationships with non-South Asian people. And we thought that was really weird because there's, there's so much support for the South Asian community and women within it, but nothing that really addressed, you know, being in a relationship with someone who was not the same race as you. Absolutely. There's so many unique concerns that even, you know, just your normal interracial group may not be aware of, you know, unique cultural concerns. And I've just really loved learning from everyone's disparate experiences, being able to share some of my own experiences to younger women. Um, It's just been a really great space. And I'm grateful to you and Deepa for having started that. If you're a South Asian woman in an interracial relationship, do check out this Facebook group. Remember to answer all their membership questions. That's an important thing. (laughs) Yes, it is. Thank you. Please answer the membership questions or we won't let you in. (laughs) Yes. And it's, it's only like three questions. Come on. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Super easy. We think so. All right. So to jump into this book. So as I mentioned, the title born confused. So I like to start off these books with uh, a brief summary. So sort of like your back of the book kind of summary, but just basically my overall takeaway. So this book, um, Dimple Lala, our main character is 17 and caught between two worlds, her Indian origins and familial expectations and her American friends and upbringing. When her parents attempt to set her up with a quote unquote suitable boy, Dimple must navigate these two worlds and find out who she really is. 
And so if this summary sounds really basic, really foundational, that's because it is. So everywhere you look up information about this book, everyone talks about it being the first of its kind, the first, you know, young adult novel for South Asians with the South Asian character, sort of the first to take on the concept of an Indian American and all of the cultural expectations that come with that. I wanted to ask you, Rabia, when did you first come across this book? Where were you in your life when you found out about it? Yeah, so I was um, probably the same age as Dimple, right? Like Mm -hmm. 16 or 17. I remember reading it and being like, Dimple is Rabia. Rabia is Dimple. Like we are the same person. Um, (laughs) And and it was so important to me because I had never seen myself reflected in media that way. Right. Mm -hmm. So there was Princess Jasmine, who we know is like stuck between two cultures and a very westernized version of what Mm -hmm. brown people are in the East. And then there was Bollywood, which I loved. But, you know, Bollywood women were Indian women or South Asian women and and spoke the language and lived the culture. And like, I don't speak Hindi. I barely speak Gujarati. I had never seen a character that was like stuck and confused. And like this whole ABCD thing just felt like me. And then she was this real flushed out character with all these different emotions. And it it really was like transformative for me to read this book. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And so for anyone listening to this that isn't, you know, South Asian American or Indian American, uh, ABCD refers to American born confused Desi. Desi, a term meaning from one's country, usually refers to someone from uh, a South Asian country, sort of a term we use to define ourselves. And uh, the whole ABCD concept, they go into it in this book. It was a fairly new term in the late 90s, early 2000s, which is where this book sort of takes place. And it was a fairly new new concept. And a lot of Indian Americans used it to describe themselves or people in India use that to describe us, like Indian cousins and things like that. I really related to the Indian cousins being like, oh, you're just the, you're the ABCD. I'm like, okay, yeah, I've heard that exchange before. <laughs> right, right. And so I found it interesting that you found this book when you were about 17. So I, I don't want to age you here, but about <laughs> what year would that have been? Um, so probably like 2004, 2003. Okay, so pretty soon after when this book came out. So about a couple years after this book was published in 2002, And I was surprised I hadn't heard of it before, but I realized um, I'm a few years younger than you. So I was about seven years old in 2002. And so all of my... (laughs) That that was probably it. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, how how have I not heard of this? And I was like, oh, okay. And I have read quite a few, you know, young adult books that were written by South Asian women, but I realized all of them came after this book. So this book does really feel foundational. I mean, I dispute the concept that it's the first ever book by a South Asian woman for young adults starring a South Asian. It's probably the first one that got attention, but I thought it was really interesting that it sort of started a whole genre and probably inspired a lot of writers down the road. I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it was just so amazing to see someone who looked like me and I'm, you know, very much into I love um, young adult literature and I love South Asian young adult literature and I'm so Mm -hmm. glad there's so much more. But like I said, when I was growing up, there was 
no characters that I could fully step into their shoes. Absolutely. And it was such a struggle to find any kind of media that reflects South Asians. I mean, I feel like nowadays, South Asian teens growing up these days, they have a few different models to look towards. Like you have um, Never Have I Ever that came out that a lot of South Asian girls can relate to. Um, And more and more representation coming out uh, versus like when I was growing up, I, I can't even think of like an Indian representation, an Indian woman representation in media that I could ever look to and be like, oh, she's like me. Right. Like I remember, um, you know, Cal Penn started making waves when I was in college and then Mindy mm-hmm. Kaling a little bit after that. But like at that point, my identity was more or less already formed and very much formed on like, I'm the only one who looks like me in my world. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you have those formative years. And then after that, it's like, well, I wish I had this a few years ago. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And like, for me, I didn't grow up near my brown family. Like I grew up in a very white space, a very, you know, suburban middle class space. But even in my high school, there was one family that was Pakistani, one family that was Palestinian. And then everybody else was white or black, like, you know, so I grew up and just like very much felt alone. I always connected with my cousins in Canada, but you know, they would say funny things like, Oh, you sound like Hannah Montana or like, (laughs) they're probably the ones who called me an ABCD first or like my mom who to this day calls me a coconut because it's brown on the outside and white (laughs) on the inside. And I'm like, mom, that's really problematic. You can't say that anymore. But like, (laughs) that was my husband before we got married, used to call me lovingly an ice cream sandwich. And I'm like, please don't call me an ice cream sandwich anymore. Right, right. Like it's, it's when you really break it down, you're like, this. there's a lot of issues behind this. This isn't okay. But, you know, my mom thinks it's this big joke. But I'm like, mom, calling me a coconut during my teen years was actually like a little damaging. <laughs> but I relate to so much of what you said, because I also grew up in a really white space. Um, most of my childhood in rural Florida, actually. So there were not very many Indians never really found my, my, my parents, like we didn't have a huge like Indian network. It was basically just us, the nuclear family. Everyone else was pretty much back in India, one cousin in the States. And so it was very much just being on your own with your nuclear family, trying to figure out an identity. And I think uh, Dimple in that sense really did mirror that aspect of how I grew up. Yeah, definitely. And even Dimple's best friend, um, Gwen, like, I see so many parallels between her and my best friend growing up, who's a wonderful white woman. You know, I love her to Mm -hmm. death, but those kind of angsty, I'm a teenager fights, like we had all of those, you know, and honestly, I was reading it again, part of the book again today, just to prepare for this. And like, again, found myself in tears, like it still makes me cry. And I'm over 30, just because like, you know, it gets me the book gets me. Yeah. (laughs) And I have I have thoughts on Gwen, and we'll we'll get to her. Yeah, but, um, interesting thoughts. But yeah, I I did feel like some of the people she interacted with did really feel like, in ways, characters out of my own life. You know, well-meaning friends who don't really get it are trying to relate. And like looking back on it as an adult, we were like, ooh, yeah, hmm. But <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely. And before we delve into some of those moments, um, I I noticed you said you had reread this book. So is this a book you've come back to a few times over the years? 
I think, so I read it, you know, in high school, I feel like I read it again in college and then put it in like my bin of books. And, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know when the sequel Bombay blues was published. I did buy it and haven't been able to get into it. And I assume because in Bombay blues dimple, I believe is like about to embark on college. And I'm just so far removed from that right now. It feels like, and you know, the author has a very specific style of writing. So yes, picking, picking up born confused felt like you know, I honestly, I started in the middle because I was like, I know what happens. Like I can, I can pick it up anywhere and just jump back into that world. And it was really nice to jump back into it though. Again, like I did feel kind of angsty like I did when I was a teenager (laughs) and I don't love feeling that way. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I looked up some reviews of Bombay Blues because I hadn't gotten into it. And there were a lot of, you know, passionate fans of the original, but Bombay Blues actually came out like over 10 years after the original. Mm. So I feel like in many ways, the audience grew up and right. they couldn't relate. I almost wish, you know, they sh- she should have just aged Dimple like 10 years. Like, right. But- <laughs> I, and I mean, I do like, I want to know what happened to Dimple. I want to know who she married and does she have kids? And like, mm-hmm. are we still leading parallel lives? Like what, yeah. what happens to her when she's over 30? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I would be very interested in that narrative, but yeah, they only age her up like a couple years. Yeah. Um, and so uh, before we get into the book, I always like to provide a little information about the author, um, but there was, there's not a ton of information about her because these are really her two books. She mm-hmm. has Born Confused and then the, the sequel, Bombay Blues. She has a few other um, published works out there. She's, you know, directed a couple of movies uh, one interesting thing I found is she apparently wrote a whole album of songs based on Born Confused. Wow. So she's a singer-songwriter. I have not heard the music, but on her website, it mentions the album of music she made. And I'm kind of curious about that now. <laughs> right. I, I'm curious about it as well. <laughs> right. And I think the main thing here is that she has said a lot of this novel is autobiographical. So down to details of the marriage between the parents. Her parents were also in an intercaste marriage. Um, Dimple herself does really feel like a nuanced character. I will give the author that. She really does feel real. And so that makes sense that she's rooted in a lot of autobiographical elements. And so if we're taking all that in mind, um, my experience is reading this book, someone who did not grow up with this book, had no idea about what it was. I will admit to you that the first, you know, couple hundred pages were a bit of a struggle (laughs) oh (laughs) I believe it I believe it and it's not it's and I guess the struggle stems from so much cringe there was so much cringe not from a writing standpoint it wasn't that it was just the situations the characters were in it's like I'm watching a, a train wreck take place from afar and I'm like no don't say those things don't do those things I'm just like it was a it was a struggle um right. there, there were a couple of scenes so there's a few scenes where Gwen uh Dimple's best friend is trying on all of Dimple's clothes and she's like look at all of your princess dresses and to me that just felt like such a flashback all your clothes are princess dresses and (laughs) well and like to me like that's the part that felt so authentic because Mm -hmm. 
I was an Indian princess for Halloween. Yes, weren't we like all? <laughs> weren't eight, we all? Eight to 13. Like, I, and if it was the right shade of blue, I was Jasmine. And like, that's what my mom and I did. You know what I mean? So, exactly. so, so cringy, but like also relatable. so relatable. Absolutely. But then it got into some cringe elements that it went beyond, you know, lighthearted cringe and more like, ooh, I don't feel good. Like, Dimple putting on a bindi to her date. I was like, don't do it. Right. But she does, right? She exotifies herself and like fetishizes herself and and, like leans into that I'm ethnic, you know? And I don't think I ever leaned into it that hard, but like- Mm -hmm when I was the only brown person in the space, I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to own it. Like this is, this is what I am. And how other people reacted to me is, is ultimately up to them. But like, I always struggled with that line of being proud of my culture and then also being the only one who looked like me and dressed like me. Absolutely. And I think it all came to a head for me that the one scene which almost made me want to put the book down was when Dimple was on her double date with Julian and Gwen and her boyfriend and Julian is putting on all of these crass ethnic based moves down to like, oh, I'm sure the Kama Sutra is in your blood. And I'm like, oh, no. But like, again, so cringy, but so real. Like it happened to me. Did it really? Because that that was something I could not relate to. I couldn't imagine someone actually saying that in real life. I'm telling you, boys in the late 90s and the early 2000s said dumb shit like that. Can I say shit on your podcast? I don't know. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) They said dumb shit like that. And I'm sure there are boys out there who still do. (laughs) I, I will commend it to her then. And I was picking up on some of this that made me wonder like is this a fault I'm having with the writer or is this you know secondhand cringe from my own life or is this you know a slight generational gap because I think even being a teen in the 2010s was really different from being a teen in the period this book takes place just in terms of general knowledge general yeah even in that 10 year space there's such a difference there is such a difference and as I was reading it I was like some of this is not gonna age well like yeah comments Mm -hmm. like that because you know and I I think about it in the sense of like I was a freshman in high school when 9-11 happened Uh and really my life like pre-9-11 people didn't know who Muslims were people didn't know who Indians were people didn't know who Sikhs were like we just flew under the under the radar and then post 9-11 like America just had this knowledge explosion of like all the different types of brown people from the Middle East and South Asia and Southeast Asia, right? Like they weren't always correct, but I I like to think the silver lining is that maybe people were more understanding or more open to the cultures of brown people from the East, if that makes sense. I like that you brought 9-11 into it basically I feel that generational divides, you know, people say millennials, Gen X, Gen Z, so on and so forth. But I feel like one of the big generational gaps is, do you remember 9-11 or do you not remember 9-11? Sure. I don't remember 9-11. I was six years old. I have no memory of the event. And so I can't really appreciate what it was like to become visibly brown in that sense. 
and suddenly feel conscious of how other people perceived you in that way. Yeah. And I have, I have a, the craziest story. So I was a freshman in high school, like I mentioned, um, our freshman year was world cultures. That was like our social studies unit. Mm -hmm. And my teacher was an Indian woman and she was married to a white man. And on day one, she like came up to me and was so excited that I was Indian. And I was like very uncomfortable with being Indian. (laughs) And I was just like, you're crazy. But I say all that to say, literally the week 9-11 happened, I was supposed to present on Islam as like the only Muslim person in the school or like one of three Muslim people in the school. And like, had done this whole big presentation and my mom was like, do you still want to do it? And the teacher was like, do you still want to do it? And I was like, I mean, I guess. And like, literally I pulled out of all my classes to teach Islam to eight different sections of freshmen in high school. And like, now that I'm saying this out loud, it's such a bad idea, right? Like, why would you Mm -hmm. let this happen as the adult in the situation? And as I was walking back to the seat, my seat in one of my classes, a white boy turned to me and said, is Osama bin Laden your father? And like, my jaw just hit the floor. I couldn't even respond because, like, I didn't even know who he was. Like, the fact that anybody – I mean, we only knew who he was because of 9-11. But, mm-hmm. you know, Osama bin Laden was never a name that came up at my house because, like, why would it? Right. You know? And it is it, – for a really long time before, you know, my generation was called millennials, We they, they thought that the term, you know, when I was in high school was, like, the 9-11 generation. And I was like, that's mm-hmm. awful. But it, it really was. It was such – a defining moment for people my age. And like, I'm an old millennial, like I'm barely a millennial. Um, <laughs> I call myself an ex because there's so much of Gen X I relate to, but it, it really was, you know, I know exactly where I was, exactly what I was doing. I know what class I was in. I know what happened at lunch that day. Like it really did define, it's really before 9-11 and after 9-11 with how I view myself as a brown person in America. Yeah, and and you can tell that this book was written before 9-11 just because it was published in 2002, but this book literally takes place in New York City. Right. And there's no mention of anything, and that's how I knew, okay, this book takes place in the 90s. Like, this book could not take place in 2001 or 2002 without any mention of 9-11. Right, and I think so much, like, you know, to get away from the heavy stuff, like, all the photography descriptions Mm -hmm. and all the DJing descriptions, like, that also didn't age well. Like, nobody... Very few people develop their photos in a basement, right? We all have our cell phones and we just, you know, click it on Instagram, print it through some app. So I know what was hard for me reading it again was like some of those descriptions are very, very lengthy. And I'm like, all right, come on, Mm -hmm. get over over it already. Like she made a photo. Let's talk about the actual photo. But, you know, finding I think Dimple finding her peace in that process is, is part of her learning about herself as well. Right. Yeah. And I'm glad you bring up the writing of this book because this book, I was surprised by its length. So you would think for a breezy, you know, YA novel about, you know, unpacking the South Asian experience and finding yourself in America. I was not expecting an almost 500 page book. Right. Right. Yeah. And I'm reading through this and I'm I'm a writer myself, albeit unpublished, but I'm a writer myself. And (laughs) I read through this and I'm thinking, you know, I appreciate her talent for description, but we don't need to know how every single thing tastes and every single thing smells. And I found the writing, while beautiful, like I tell her talent is in prose writing and in descriptions, 
it was a weird contrast with the dialogue of this book where the dialogue often feels very much immature, very much between teenagers. And so I felt the two were like an awkward mix. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And honestly, I think when I was like 16 or 17, I thought it was so cool, right? Like (laughs) I thought it was so edgy that she uses dashes to show that people are speaking and not quotation marks. And like, I think at 17, I loved reading those descriptions because again, nothing else I had ever read described the taste of chai or the taste of curry or what it smells like when you walk into an Indian kitchen. And now like, I think those experiences are so much universal because Indian food and South Asian food is accessible. Like people know what South Asian food smells like because they've smelt it before. But like for me growing up, it wasn't until my friends were in my house with my mom cooking that they had even smelled or seen some of those foods. Right. Yeah. I, I, I feel like now, now we're running into the issues of white people sometimes taking too much of an interest in things they would have scorned when they were children. You know what right, I mean? Right. Right. <laughs> And like, I, and I ooh, you like turmeric now? And before you used to say my 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 stained duppas were gross and dirty. Right. <laughs> well, and I, I wonder if the author wrote it that way, thinking like maybe a non-South Asian audience would read it and would need all those descriptions, right? Yeah. yeah. I think this book definitely brings to mind like who is this for? And in many ways, I do think this book is for the South Asian teen finding herself, but it also shoulders the burden of being for a broader audience and trying to educate. So I can see why this book is so long. I think if this book was written, you know, say 10 years later, it wouldn't have needed to take on all of that burden. But at that point when it was written, it had to do everything. Right, right. And I, I totally agree with that. Like, I, I do wonder, you know, when this was being published, like what, what that conversation was like between the author and the publisher and like, Mm-hmm. how she pitched it. I just wonder about that. I do too. Yeah. I wonder what it was like to have this book marketed. How, how was it sold? I wonder about all of that. And I find it interesting, even though we've talked about this book being dated in some ways, there are some depictions here that do feel really progressive and interesting. For instance, we do see LGBTQ representation in this book, which I wasn't expecting to see at all. In some ways, it could be considered some tokenism, but these characters are fleshed out. They do have a purpose. And I thought that was really interesting. I know. And and like for me, again, as a teenager, I hadn't seen Indian people described this way. And, you know, there's even yes. a um, a drag queen character in here. And yes. I think like part of me understood and and I I should also say like I went to India for the first time at 17 so Mm -hmm. I don't remember if it was like pre or post this book but there were so many concepts in this book that my family didn't talk about because they were taboo whether it was being lesbian or gay or being transgender or being a drag queen like the fact that that even existed in the Indian community was so eye-opening to me because I had just never seen it before yeah, I, I, you would think, and then they go into some of that. They're like, well, these things have existed in our culture forever. And I'm like, oh, you're right. And I realized, oh, I didn't know this when I was a teen. You would think that, you know, we just don't talk about love and sex and relationships and identities. That's just not a thing. And it's, 
not not the case. The culture is vibrant and it's included all of these since the beginning of time. Right. And I think, you know, what was also really important to me was how accepting her parents were of the lesbian couple. Like yeah. this this whole idea, you know, it's it's a coming of age story. So there's acceptance between Dimple and her parents, but I hadn't experienced that yet in my life. Like I didn't feel like I could tell my parents anything a lot like how Dimple feels at the beginning of the book. Um, But to see a conservative South Asian family be open, like I was like, wow, maybe, maybe there is hope for me. (laughs) (laughs) Dimple's parents for me were interesting. So I really liked the ending chapters where Dimple was getting to know her parents as individuals. Again, I really liked that. But they were, they were sort of a weird mix of things for me. On one hand, you have them being, you know, relatively rigid with their daughter. You know, drinking is not a thing in the house. Like, even they don't drink. Um, but And at the same time, they, they really want her to do well in school. But they're also, like, trying to set her up with a college boy when she's, like, barely 17. Right. I feel like that was just not a thing. Like, my parents were like, you could think about boys when you're when you're out of college. You can think about boys then, like that kind of thing, you know? For me, my parents started getting proposals when I was 16 or 17. And mm. yeah, and my mom saying like, we're not even accepting them. And I remember feeling really grateful for that because both my parents wanted me to go to college. And as I was like in my junior or senior year, they started pushing it a little bit heavier. And I was like, no, no, wait till... I'm out of college. And of course I was dating someone that they wouldn't have approved of at all. Like let's, <laughs> let's start with the basis there that I was not interested in anything they had to offer. But I mean, I think maybe it's that generation thing between you and I, like the women I grew up with did get proposals at 16 and 17. And a lot of them did get married at 18, 19 or 20 because they didn't go to college. So it was, it, you know, reading it now, like I remember when she says like, her friend just turned 17 and Karsh says he's like 20. And I'm like, wow, that is kind of weird. But mm-hmm. it was like, that. that's weird now in 2020. But 20 years ago, it didn't feel weird. Yeah, I was just thinking of from a college person's perspective. I'm like, I wouldn't want to hang around with all these high school kids. Right. Like, this is so weird. <laughs> and like, as much as I love him as a, the love interest, like, I don't think he's a real person. <laughs> Like, yeah, he just kind of seems like an admirer, which honestly, if you're a 17 year old girl, that's really all you want is for someone to think you're special and admire you. Right. So that's fine. <laughs> right. And like, just, he seems so understanding and like willing to go on this journey with Dimple of finding herself. And I'm like, what 20 year old dude wants to do that? Like, that's no. not what they want to do. <laughs> <laughs> that was, it was so interesting. And then some of the other things her parents do, like they live in New Jersey, but Dimple is always like gallivanting to New York City every now and then and driving to New York City. And I'm like, I've lived in New York City. That's not an easy drive, like at right, all. Right, right. <laughs> and I have cousins who live in northern New Jersey and like they really don't go to New York City that often. <laughs> right, especially like she just goes alone. She hangs out with her friends there. They just go to Jackson Heights. And I'm, I'm just thinking like, her parents seem really strict on one hand, but then I'm thinking about my parents who overall weren't that strict. Like I dated in high school, which is mm-hmm. like not a thing a lot of Indian girls typically did, but I dated in high school. And at the same time, my parents were like, 
where are you going? Who are you going to be with? How long are you going to be gone? Like whenever I left the house, like that's when all the rules came in, but it just felt like Dimple could go, la di da go anywhere. Well, and I think so. And like, again, like I'm comparing myself to Dimple, but for my parents, if it had something to do with my culture or something like they approved, so like going to Jackson Heights, like they were all in. So Uh another thing I did was went to my friend's evangelical church and like talk about Islam to their youth group. And it ended up being a presentation to basically his whole church. And so my parents let me get in this young man's car in like my quote unquote Sunday best, go to a (laughs) church where like they didn't know where the church is and speak without them. But because I was talking about our culture and our values, like maybe in their mind, it was okay. I don't know. It's just like such a strange experience that yeah, they're so strict on one hand, but so lax on certain subjects. Robbie, I know you're a parent. I'm not a parent yet, but I'm just thinking parenting sounds really hard and confusing. Just it really <laughs> is. And I, I think, you know, I mentioned that I cried again, like reading the passages where she connects with her parents. I'm like, oh my God, this is going to end up being my future. Like my daughter's only seven, but you know, she's going to be a angsty teenager one day. And, and yeah. It, it is confusing. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to it. Um, so I think the overall takeaway I got from this book is that at the time it was the ABCD story. It was the South Asian representation story. And I think right now we're privileged to be in a situation where this is just an Indian story. This is a South Asian in America story. And I'm really grateful for that because we've both discussed at length the things we can relate with, the things we couldn't relate with. And I think that's just important that even though this book started off as just the one example, um, the, the whole body of literature is, literature is not a monolith. And I'm so grateful for that. I am also so grateful for that. Like I said, I love you know young adult novels and there's so many other stories that share all of our experiences. I think the last thing I want to briefly rant about this book before we move into uh, further recommendations and things is I still don't buy Gwen as a sympathetic character. They really tried to make her a sympathetic character as the book goes on, talking about her tough childhood and her struggle to find her culture and things like that. But I'm just like, girl, you appropriated everything. I I still can't like you. Well, and then I think about like, when did we start talking about cultural appropriation? Because Mm -hmm. I grew up seeing Gwen Stefani and Abindi and it was cool on her, but it was weird and ethnic on me. So I don't know. I'm not 100% sure when that conversation started happening. And absolutely, she appropriates so much. But I had a, a conversation with someone else about like, well, how do you draw that line between appreciation and appropriation? And I feel like Gwen thinks she's appreciating the culture but she's not. (laughs) Yeah. I I've thought about that line too. And this sort of came up when I got married. So I got married last year and I had friends, you know, white friends who were asking me, Hey, can we wear Indian clothes to your wedding? How do you feel about that? And that time it really showed me that the real difference between appreciation and appropriation, at least to me is being invited in. And it's just asking for that permission, being invited in. And I think that's the real thing that Gwen doesn't do. She just sort of barges her way in. She's never really invited to anything. 
For sure. And I think there's that invitation and then also like that understanding. So, A, congratulations on being recently married. That's a really big deal. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, but I had a situation where one of my white friends and her fiance were invited to a South Asian wedding and um, her fiance was one of the groomsmen. So he was in a South Asian outfit mm-hmm. and she went with the women of the family to Edison, New Jersey to get an Indian outfit from an Indian retailer. And like, she probably didn't get the best deal cause you know, she's blonde haired and blue eyed, but like <laughs> it was an authentic experience. And then I had another situation where in our local Facebook group of a white woman, I consider a friend was like, Hey, I need an Indian outfit for this wedding I'm going to in like three days. Does anyone have one I can borrow? And I messaged her and I was like, you can't just borrow an Indian outfit. Like she wanted a sari specifically. And I was like, so first of all, like they're made, like the one I have will not fit you because we're in totally different body types. They're not adjustable like that. Also, like saris are expensive. Like I have Mm -hmm. heirloom saris for my grandmother. I'm not lending those out to anybody and then, like, finally, do you even know what you're doing? Because I'm not going to wrap it on you. Like, you know. I've worn a sari, like, twice. And one was at my wedding. And two people had to help me put it on. Like. <laughs> my mom helps me the few times I wear them. My brother's getting, he was supposed to get married this year. Got moved to next year. But we hired someone to drape and pin our saris. Because I'm like, I don't want to <laughs> deal with it. Like. Exactly. You know, we're getting the makeup hair. And now, like, a draper. So that it looks beautiful. But the invitation and then like the understanding, right? Like she didn't understand what a sari was to her. It really was just a costume you could borrow from someone. Cause I would let someone borrow a Halloween costume. There's yeah. very few people I would let borrow a sari. And the few people I would are like related to me. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I'm like, Ooh, gosh, it reminds me of when I set up, you know, you know, for weddings, they have like the websites and mm-hmm. I put a little page for frequently asked questions. And the most frequently asked question I got to the point I had to put it on the website is, is there going to be an elephant at your wedding? Oh, and I'm gosh. like, no. <laughs> Oh my goodness. And, and, you know, back to this multitude of stories, it's so good to have more than one narrative about what South Asian culture is, you know? Yes. And like there's, there's, I've seen helicopters at South Asian weddings. I've seen horses. I've seen limos. I have not seen an elephant in the U S and I don't think I ever will. Yeah. And also like I was explaining to people, they were asking, Oh, are you going to have a multi-day ceremony, all that? And I'm like, well, first of all, my husband's white. That'd be a lot. Uh, but second of all, I'm from the Kerala Nair tradition, and we are well known for having 20 minute ceremonies. Like, oh, wow. we're in and out. Like, it, it's a weird, like, interesting historical tidbit where apparently, like, it was like a warrior group, and marriage was just sort of a temporary thing, and it wasn't added to the culture till later. Like, all the partnerships were just kind of temporary, and women could just throw the men out at will. It's a really fun, interesting That's- historical tidbit. A little but. <laughs> bit awesome. I think I need to look that up. <laughs> yeah, my, my parents were telling me that back in the day, um, when a woman decided she was done with a man, she just put his shoes outside the house and he had to leave. Well, if that was the truth, my husband would have left multiple times a long time ago because <laughs> <I> when, <know. laughs> when my white husband leaves his shoes on the stairs, which drives me bonkers, sometimes I just like throw them out the front door and I'm like, find them in the morning. This is, this is your punishment. (laughs) And the last thing I actually want to bring up. So this is, this comes back to the book. I know we've diverged a bit from the book, but this has been fun. Um, But 
there's a point in the book where a couple of times Dimple's mom says this and then um, Gwen herself reiterates this where um, Dimple's mom is happy to show Gwen, you know, parts of the culture. And she's like, well, Gwen needs this. Like, what does she have otherwise? Like, what is her culture otherwise? And Gwen sort of reiterates similar things. Like, she doesn't really have a culture. Mm-hmm. And I know in my interracial relationship, my husband has told me similar things before where he feels like, you know, sometimes it feels like I don't have a culture. And to me, that's such a weird thing because I'm like, all of America is your culture. I'm saying, I'm wondering if you experienced anything similar in, in your relationship. So I think, I think I'm like acutely aware of my husband having white American culture and like how much him and his family take for granted that they have off for Christmas and they have off for Easter and they have off for this white, you know, these white American cultural holidays. I remember wanting to take off for Eid and like having to pretend I was sick, right. Either at Mm -hmm. school or at work because I asked and said, and, and I've always been the employee who said, you know, I'll work over Thanksgiving or I'll work over Christmas. Cause like, I don't need off December 25th. Like it's not right. a big deal to me. Um, and people were always like appreciative, but when it came time for me to take a random day off and, you know, Muslims who follow a lunar calendar, everything shifts year to year. Um, I always get no. And, and even now, like I don't see, holidays like Eid or like Holy being represented as much as I want them to be. Yeah. And I, and I think that's part of it. So to answer your actual question, (laughs) you know, um, after our daughter was born, my husband and I decided, I said, listen, like I'm going to teach her Indian things. I'm going to teach her Muslim things. I would love your support. And he's come to mosque a couple of times, mostly for the food because the man (laughs) loves biryani more than I do. Oh my God. Um, Same here with my husband. He, and I recently went vegetarian a couple years back. And so he also eats vegetarian at home with me and he's like, Oh no, no more chicken biryani. No, no more chicken biryani. <laughs> we're, we're not vegetarians. I don't think my husband could, I don't think he could do it. Um, <laughs> he's such a meat and potatoes guy, but mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's come and I have also gone to Christmas mass, but I said, listen, if, if you want her to be raised Catholic, like you are, a, it has to be alongside the, this Islamic upbringing. And like, you have to be the one to make it happen. And yeah. he's fine with that. But what I'm realizing now that she's seven is like, she's absorbed so much white Christian culture from living in this country. And it's, it's me. I'm the one who has to really push to show her media and narratives of South Asian people and Muslim people. Yeah, which is why I'm so glad, you know, circling way back to the beginning that you created Beatty Books. Like, I think it's just such a great initiative for all sorts of parents or children who are just trying to navigate finding media of people like them. Representation matters. Absolutely. And that's like one of the hashtags I use all the time. And even (laughs) back to, you know, in Sawir, like, I'm one of the voices who kind of always pops up when these women are asking about relationships and children. You know, I'm not the only mom in the group. I don't have the oldest kid in the group, but um, it, the group itself does skew a little younger. And mm-hmm. the, again, these are the books I wish I had growing up. Like, I think I would have had such a much healthier sense of self-identity and, and been so much more proud of my Indian culture if I could see it in ways that 
that felt authentic to me and looked like me. For sure. And we're right in a perfect segue topic. And I want to ask, I usually ask my, um, my guests, do you have any recommendations for other books? Maybe you've read Born Confused or want to find other examples. Do you have another book that you could recommend that you've come across? I have, I have three sitting in front of me. If I can share all three. Give them to me. Um, so the first, which I read really recently, it's another um, YA novel, novel, YA novel. It's called The Love and Lies of Roxana Ali. I've read that one. Okay. And the twist at the end, get like it got me so hard. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think I read this in like an hour because I was so compelled by the story. Um, so that's that's a great one. This was on apparently Reese's book club, but erotic stories for Punjabi widows was just really I read interesting that one too. I like that one too. Um, it was just really interesting to me. And again, I read it really quickly because it, for me, this was a South Asian story that I just didn't know about this aspect of South Asian culture. Like I'm not Punjabi. So I didn't, I didn't know much about it. And it was just really interesting mm-hmm. um, to read that. And then I um, love Rupi Carr. I don't know if I'm saying her last name right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got to see her live in Philadelphia pre-corona. I have, you know, she has her two books of poetry out and I find myself like screenshotting or I guess taking actual pictures of the book to post on social media because so much of her stuff just feels like home or like feels like my life, you know? Yeah. Nothing groundbreaking there, but this was this is from my really big I have piles of books around my house so this is from one of my piles (laughs) the recommendation I have uh, maybe you've come across this book or read it I actually read this book really really recently Um, it was the book I read right before Born Confused actually Um, and this is a book called Good Talk by Mira Jacob and so Good Talk is really different than a lot of the books we've talked about it's a graphic novel and it's a memoir and so this is Mira Jacob's own memoir and Oh, gosh, if we want to talk about relatable to me. So Mira Jacob is also um, Suryani Christ. She's Syrian Christian, but her family's from Kerala, like mine. So there's these little snippets of Malayalam in there, which I loved. Um, She grows up in America. Her parents, you know, they're they're really interesting characters, but she moves to New York. She um, marries a white man. She has a biracial child. And it basically shows her from you know, childhood into her adulthood, dealing with things like 9-11. There's a really poignant chapter about being in New York around 9-11 when she was a young adult at the time. Um, it shows like her answering tough questions to her um, her young son who's biracial. He's asking, are brown people bad? Because he's like around, you know, the Trump presidency as that's sort of coming up for him. And He's asking, like, are we bad people? Like, why don't they like us? And it's heartbreaking. And she's having to answer all these tough questions and, you know, sort of navigate her own status as a a writer. She constantly has to defend herself as, you know, not a diversity hire. Like, she's a talented writer in her own right. And this book was heartbreaking and beautiful. And it's a fairly new release. It came out, like, last year. Um, It's very entrenched in political events of probably the last eight to 10 years or so. And I highly recommend it. it it's just such a inspiring book and she's got other books out and now I have to read them all. But yeah, that one's good talk by Mira Jacob. 
I, I think you could also really find a lot to love in that book. I'm sure it might hit a little more personal for you having a, a young biracial child. I think her child is about seven when the whole book starts. So I'm like, yeah, Whoa. <laughs> I definitely need to check that out. I want to make one more recommendation if I can. Sure. Um, not for a book, but actually for an artist. So the Ooh. website is Everyday Love Art, and it is a South Asian woman out of, um, I think she's in San Francisco, but her art um, often features her family, which is also interracial. Like on her website, she has her white, red-haired husband who – I like her art because it looks like my family. Like yeah. there's a, a dark-haired, brown-skinned woman. There's a lighter-skinned, red-haired man. There's a daughter that is a mix of that. Um, but I'm always looking for media that represents our family and the fact that – and she has art that has nothing to do with people. Like she's just got beautiful prints. We have some of them in my daughter's room. But I love that mm-hmm. it's an interracial family. And that's that's what she paints and draws and, and has on her website. That's so beautiful. I'm definitely going to check that out. And listeners, I hope you check out some of these great recommendations. And if you check out Born Confused, maybe you grew up ABCD like the two of us did, or maybe you're just curious about the young adult genre. Either way, do check this book out. It's a fun read overall, and I had a good time. And Rabia, thank you so much for being on this episode with me. I loved talking to you. I feel like we could talk for so much longer about all these topics. (laughs) I agree. I loved being on your podcast. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you all so much for listening. If you'd like to find out more, or if you'd like to be on an episode of Your Favorite Book, find me at Vika Reads, V-I-K-A-R-E-A-D-S on Instagram and Twitter. I'd be happy to hear from you. And as always, don't judge a book by its cover, but do judge a book by its lover. See you next time.